invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 20. 20th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We live in very tumultuous times, perilous times, beloved, with a a pandemic, uh, with government-ordered lockdowns, with rioting in the streets, socialism on the march, a very important presidential election, as well as other offices on the ballot that are looming uh, in just a few weeks. Uh, Some churches are being... uh, fined and threatened by their states uh, for even meeting to worship God. And Christians are rightly concerned, uh, even in some cases confused in terms of our relationship to civil civil government and to uh, politics. How should Christians relate and respond to all of these various things? And uh, How should we vote? Should we vote? How should we respond to a government that has overstepped its bounds, so to speak? Where does obedience to civil government begin and end? So there are many questions that are confronting us in our day, brethren. And uh, just let me say before we open up our text this morning, to make a simple, simple disclaimer, particularly to any that are visiting with us, Uh, that we are not in this place an issue-oriented church. Uh, You will not often hear sermons on the the so-called hot-button issues of the day, and I have no intention of using the pulpit to promote a political agenda, for example. Uh, We're committed to proclaiming nothing but the Word of God, the whole counsel of God, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in this place as a matter of conviction. Amen. However, however, the Word of God does say something to us and teach us about the Christian's role in society and our responsibilities towards civil government. It does teach us what is right and what is wrong, and by extension, even into the realm of politics. The Bible, the Word of God, is sufficient to instruct us in righteousness even as it relates to virtually every area of our lives. And so wherever God speaks in His Word, we need to be prepared to preach it and to heed it as the people of God. Uh, That being said, I'd like for us to consider this morning a section here in Luke's Gospel where the Lord Jesus Christ gives us some very helpful instruction in this area. And as we read this, keep in mind these are His words. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. After Jesus has given this very frightening and unflattering parable that relates to the leaders, the Jewish leaders and so forth, about God's judgment upon them, verse 19 begins... And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. And so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. That's the Roman governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, We know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said unto them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words, and in the presence of the people they marveled at his answer 
and kept silent. So reads the infallible Word of God. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for this clear statement of our Lord Jesus Christ and its implications for us. We would pray you would instruct us and help us this morning as we seek to navigate this very, in some ways, confusing and complex issue of church and state. Uh, Have mercy upon us and help us, we pray, by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now in this portion of Luke's Gospel, Jesus has come to the final week of his own earthly life. Uh, At the end of this week, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tried, he's going to be uh, convicted and crucified by these Jewish leaders and the Roman authorities. And the opposition to Jesus has uh, almost reached its apex as, as his appointed day to be crucified for sinners is quickly approaching. And really this entire chapter is highlighting that opposition as it came to expression with the Pharisees, the chief priests, even the Herodians and Sadducees have a hand in it. But the Jewish leaders who hated him without a cause. Their hatred, of course, is going to ultimately send him to the cross in the sovereign purpose of God. But there are three separate but connected incidents recorded here in this chapter that underscore this visceral hatred towards Jesus and the attempts on the part of these unbelieving men to discredit him and to actually get rid of him. As we noted in verse 19, It says the chief priests, the scribes that very hour, sought to lay hands on him. They would have killed him if they could have. But they feared the people, for they knew he'd spoken this parable against them. The parable that said that that the judgment of God was going to fall upon these Jewish leaders for their rejection of the stone that God had sent. Now, we're just going to focus on this particular incident that takes place in or near the temple grounds and having been foiled by the Lord Jesus and their previous attempt to discredit him, the Pharisees and the scribes and Herodias, they join forces. And in verse 20 it tells us that they sent, they sent spies to observe Jesus and try to catch him in uh, saying something seditious or blasphemous that they might be able to to give him over to the authority of the Roman governor in order to be tried and condemned. Uh, They want to entrap him in his own words that they might condemn him. Notice their clever question. Uh, These spies, these deceitful men, they come to Jesus and uh, they seek to flatter him, to soften him up, uh, trying to present themselves as uh, respecting his wisdom and his authority as a rabbi, a teacher. In verse 21, they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Yes, uh uh-huh. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so they present this uh, seemingly serious question to the Lord Jesus. Is it lawful, that is, is it lawful according to your interpretation of God's law to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, brethren, that was a hot-button issue uh, in that day, a hot-button question. It's a trick question, of course. But first of all, Caesar is the family name of the emperor of the Roman Empire. The Caesar family had ruled in Rome for centuries, beginning, you remember, Julius Caesar? And they ruled for all this time, have a line of Caesars, and now Tiberius Caesar was the emperor of the Roman Empire at this time. Now, of course, Rome, Caesar as the emperor, occupied and ruled over the Jews at this time. It was a matter of national and even uh, religious humiliation that a Gentile pagan government ruled over the chosen people of God and required them to submit to them, to pay taxes to them, and so forth. This was repugnant to most Jews in that day. 
And then worst of all, Tiberius Caesar expected them to be uh, to submit to him, to uh, reverence him in, in a religious way. Um, he demanded an absolute devotion and submission to himself. Uh, the Roman coins, like the one Jesus is going to use in the story, had on one side an engraving of Caesar. And on the other side, the inscription uh, Pontiff Maxim. And that simply means high priest or highest priest. And so, brethren, the question that these men asked was clever because of this. They reason, if Jesus answers yes, we're to pay taxes to Caesar, it's going to alienate the religious Jews, the patriots, the conservatives, we could say, because they saw paying tribute to Caesar as virtually blasphemy. Uh, and this was going to diminish Jesus' uh, respect and authority among them. On the other hand, if he answers no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, uh, then they could turn him into the Roman authorities and he could be charged with sedition and treason. In fact, that was one of the false charges the Jewish leaders made against Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, that he was forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself was the king. And so they asked this very clever question, hoping to entrap the Lord in his own words. That was, those were their wicked intentions. But now notice Jesus' more clever response to them. Appreciate they didn't fool him for a moment. Uh, verse 23 says, He perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Uh, Jesus, with divine omniscience, saw right through their words, their intentions, their schemes. Uh, he knew what they were up to. And it is important for us to realize that Jesus, as the divine Son of God, is omniscient and He sees right straight into our hearts. And He knows if our outward praise and our outward flattery, as it were, of Him is sincere or whether it's not. But then Jesus asked to see a Roman coin, a denarius, uh, which is the same amount that the Jews were required to pay in tax to Caesar. Verse 24, He says, Show me a denarius whose image and inscription does it have. And they answered and said, Caesar's. And, uh, and He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus' answer here was, masterful. It was full of wisdom. In fact, it was so wise, the next verse tells us that they could not catch Him in His words, and they marveled at His answer, and they kept quiet. They were dumbfounded. Jesus had shut their mouths. He'd outsmarted them. Even His enemies marveled at Him and His wisdom. But his answer here goes beyond just being clever and wise and avoiding their, uh, their trap. In this short, crisp statement, he's given us his vision of the relationship between church and state, so to speak. And he is saying the people of God have obligations and responsibilities both to God as well as to civil government. When Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, He's using the term Caesar as pointing to civil government and authority. Civil authority. We could say the magistrate. Whoever rules over us in a civil and secular way. Whether it be presidents, governors, congress, police, whatever the authorities may be. Caesar was the ruling authority in Israel in that day. And Jesus plainly states, we're to render to Caesar those things that belong to Caesar. And we're to pay to him whatever he requires. The word render has to do with obligation. Uh, something that we owe to someone. Something that we give to them by their right. Well, we have an obligation. Obligations to both God and to Caesar, brethren. And they're not identical obligations. They're different obligations in most cases. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. So here we have what we might call 
a true separation of church and state. Caesar and God are not one and the same. They're not one and the same. Church and civil government are not one and the same either. Jesus envisions that His people have distinct responsibilities to both God and Caesar. Now let's consider a couple of things. First of all, the things we owe to God. Secondly, those things we owe to Caesar. Uh, what do we owe to God? What sort of things are we obligated to, as God's creatures, especially His redeemed creatures, to render to Him? Now, that could be a very long list, and we're only going to be able to touch the surface this morning. In a real sense, of course, we owe Him everything. Amen. Everything. And so we're just going to skip along like you throw a rock to the water and just bounces along. That's really all we have time to do. Appreciate there's a, there's a multitude of things that we could say that we owe to our God. Alright, so let's look at three or four of them. First of all, we owe Him supreme and absolute affection and devotion. We owe Him that. You remember what the first and greatest commandment is. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as His creatures, and especially as His people, we're to love Him with all that we are and all that we have. We're to love Him, we're to be committed to Him, we're to be devoted to Him above all other persons, all other objects in our lives and in this world, more than our dearest relations, more than anything in the world, more than our very lives. And that to love anyone or anything else in this world more than Him, the Bible makes it clear, is idolatry. It's idolatry. God alone, the triune God, the God of glory and grace, is worthy to be loved supremely and absolutely as the Almighty Creator, as the Sovereign Lord and Ruler and Gracious Redeemer of His people. We owe Him every last fiber of our being, our devotion, our affection, Everything we are, everything we have, is to be devoted to Him. We're to love Him supremely, brethren. That's what we owe Him. Second, along with that, we're to direct all of our religious worship and praise and glory to Him. God is great, and He's greatly to be praised. Psalm 48.1 and we're to give all the glory to Him, to no other. He requires that we ascribe all glory and honor to Him as our God, as our Creator. He alone is God. And besides Him, there is no other God. Psalm 96, Give unto the Lord the glory due His name. And so at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, for example, you remember the way they begin. I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the next three commandments tell us how He wants to be worshipped. That God is jealous for His worship. He's jealous for His glory. He's jealous for His honor, brethren. And He's infinitely worthy of all of our hearts' worship and praise and devotion. We need to guard our hearts from idols. And from giving worship to any other being, any other object, any other person, but the triune and true and living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship and praise are things that are due us to Him. We owe Him that. We owe Him praise. We're to give Him the glory that's due to His name. Thirdly, or to render to Him careful obedience. Cheerful obedience. Jeremiah 27-23, for example, God says concerning the nation of Israel, but this is what I command you, uh, commanded them saying, Obey my voice and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, and it shall be well with you. God requires His creature, creature, creatures, all of us, to be obedient to Him. 
that we obey His voice. In the New Testament, for example, even in the New Covenant, for uh, in First Thessalonians four one, Paul says this to the brethren in Thessalonica. He says, "Brethren, we urge and exhort." In the Lord Jesus, that you should abound in more and more, just as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and please God. For, here's how we're to walk and please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says to believers, to Christians, here's how you're to please God. Here's what you're obliged to do to Him and for Him. Obey the commandments of God through Christ. That's what we're called to do. We're called to obey Him. Now, of course, that obedience for believers is the obedience that comes from a renewed heart. It's the obedience produced by uh, grace and the Spirit done out of gratitude to Christ for His mercy to us. Absolutely. But all that being true, brethren, Paul still says that we ought. Ought is a word of obligation. We ought. It's our duty to obey His commandments. This is something that we owe to Him. We owe to God. Remember Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we're to render to Him cheerful, prompt, willing obedience to His revealed will. We owe God. We owe God. Render to Him faithful, cheerful obedience. Thirdly, I'm sorry, not thirdly, fourthly. We're to render to Him a disposition of utter dependence and faith. We're obligated to recognize our absolute dependence upon Him for everything. We are nothing. He is the faithful God. And so we're to trust Him with all of our heart. We're to trust His promises. We're to trust His providence. We're to trust His Son. We're to trust His gospel. Faith is at the very heart of what we owe to God. 1 John tells us even that it's the duty of everyone to believe in Christ and the record that He's given us of His Son. This is something we owe to Him. We're to believe in Him. We're to trust in Him with all of our heart. And then fifthly, we're to render to Him, we owe Him, we're to pay to Him a minimum of a tenth of our income and to do it cheerfully and joyfully. Now I bring that in here um, mainly because it's in our text. And what I mean by that is Jesus is dealing with the matter of paying taxes to Caesar. And while our giving to God is not a tax per se, it is something we owe to Him. It's important. Malachi 3.9, God asks this question, Will a man rob God? And yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed God? And God answers them. He says, In tithes and in offerings. And so God lays claim. First of all, He lays claim on everything we have. Everything you and I have comes from Him, His good hand. There's nothing we have that we haven't received from Him. But He lays a special claim on the first fruits as a token and our recognition of Him and His goodness and the fact that we are dependent upon Him and everything we have has come from Him. And so tithes and offerings of our income is something we are called to render to God. In another place he says, this is something that you ought to have done. That is to give of your first fruits of your income. So God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 tells us. Now we could go on and on, like I said earlier, but, but do we understand that we, that Jesus is saying we are to render to God those things that are God's. We're to render to Him these things that are His due. And again, we've just scratched the surface. But that's what we're to do. That's what we're called to do, beloved. Now, none of us do that. None of us do it well. None of us do it perfectly. There's none righteous, no, not one. 
We all violate this in many, many ways. We don't give God His due. But the Lord Jesus Christ did in every possible way. We'll get to that a little later. But then what are we to render to Caesar? What are we to render to Caesar? So far, I think, we all nod and say, yes, that's right, we owe this to God, we understand that. Um, whether we're doing it or not is another question, but we understand, yes, we, give, we're to, we owe everything to Him. But we have God-given responsibles and obligations as well to civil authority according to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is supreme, right? Caesar's not supreme, but we do have obligations to Caesar. And I want us to point you to three pivotal passages in the time we have this morning that highlights the Christian's responsibility, the primary responsibilities to Caesar, civil government, and authority and make some applications from that. So first of all, and it's predictable that we would turn first of all to Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And we'll read the first seven verses as Paul opens up here the role of civil government and our responses to it. Romans 13, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister or servant to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must sub be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So here Paul opens up our responsibility to civil government as well as civil government's responsibility to its people. Now, there are three responses. Again, we're not covering everything in this passage. We, we'd be here the rest of the afternoon. But three responses that we are called upon as believers to express to civil government and civil authority. Number one, we're to recognize civil government in general and our civil authority in particular as appointed by God. Paul says here, there is no authority except from God, and that the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So God Himself has instituted civil authority in the world to give stability to it. Uh, you can imagine the chaos and the, the anarchy without any government at all. We're having a little taste of that in some of our cities where there really is anarchy. The government's not doing its job, and so there's anarchy. People, violence in the streets, that's a product of not civil government not doing its job, right? But anyway, the, 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 the responsibility of government is, is to give stability to our civil life. And they bear the sword. They're to punish evil doers, punishing evil. Civil authority is designed in a sinful world to be minister of God for promoting good and punishing evil. And it's a shame when any government fails in its God-given purposes. Civil authority in government is not given by God as a blank check to do anything that it wants to do. Nor is it designed to be everything to everyone and to cater to all of the felt needs of its citizens, much less to promote evil and punish the good. The purposes of civil authority are appointed and limited by God Himself, brethren, but we are to recognize that civil authority and government is ordained by God. More than that, that the very authorities that exist 
are also ordained by God. Caesar was put on the throne by God himself. The Roman authority that ruled over the Jews was appointed by God sovereignly. And Nero, Nero, another ruler who hated Christians, was appointed by God also. As the Lord revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar uh, many hundreds of years previously through Daniel, that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whomever He chooses. As Proverbs says, By me, by wisdom incarnate, kings reign. That He raises up one ruler, and He brings another one down as it pleases Him. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to recognize and understand that presidents and senators and governors and, yes, Supreme Court justices are put in place by the very power of God. And that's true whether we like those in power or whether we don't like those in power. Whether we're good men or evil men, God has His own purposes in placing them where they are. And I would say this, whoever wins the upcoming election is in the sovereign hands of God, brethren. He's going to determine who leads and rules our nation, or any nation in the world for that matter. Now does that mean, does that mean we shouldn't bother to vote in a principled way for the people that we believe are the most qualified, who have the closest to our Christian uh, principles or values in mind and have the most integrity and those kinds of things, well, of course we should vote. Uh, because God uses means to put people in office, you understand that. And so God in His providence placed us, you see, in a land of liberty. And we have the privilege under God's grace to choose our own leaders. Very few countries in the world have that privilege. A lot of people go to vote, but then when they get the votes, the one that, wants, that has the power takes and calls out the votes to where he wins anyway. Now that may happen again, I don't know. But at any rate, we have the liberty to vote and we ought to utilize that liberty and praise God for the freedom that we still have. And if we love our neighbors and we care about God's kingdom and righteousness, we're going to be compelled to vote intelligently and prayerfully because we know how harmful and un unwise leaders can be to the cause of Christ and to our nation. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. But when the, when the wicked rule, they groan what it says. Well, at the end of the day though, brethren, God's will will be done and Christians must not give in to fear or to panic simply because the wrong person or party ends up in power. We need to realize that in elections as well as in all of life, God's ways are supreme and His ways are not always our ways. Psalm 146.3 Had I given the right Psalm this morning, says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man whom, in whom there is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Our hope must be in the Lord our God, not in presidents, not in the Supreme Court, not in Congress, not in the military. None of those things. No, they are nothing but mere mortal men. Our hope is in the living God. Secondly, we're to submit to the ordinances of civil government as a matter of conscience. It's a matter of conscience, unless, of course, they conflict with God's law. We'll get to that in a minute. But notice this emphasis, verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Verse 2, we're told we must not resist the God-appointed authorities. Verse 5, uh, verse five here it says, Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. 
So it's clear, beloved, that Christians are called by God to submit to the authority of, a, of civil authority, civil government, not only to avoid being punished as an evildoer, but also as a matter of maintaining a good conscience before God. Our nations, our states, our counties' laws and ordinances are to be submitted to, brethren. Every ordinance of man is to be complied with, generally speaking. And to resist the civil authority, Paul is saying, is to resist the authority of God Himself. That's serious business. Now, here's the issue. Here's the rub. Does that mean that there, is, there are no exceptions or limits to civil authorities' power or to our submission and our obedience? Are Christians required to blindly obey their leaders with no limits? Well, I would suggest to you, no. There are certainly limits. And anytime civil authority requires us to violate God's precepts, we are obligated to resist for God's sake. You have that principle laid out for us in Acts chapter 5 when the Jewish authorities had forbidden the apostles to preach the gospel under the threat of prison. Christ had sent them to preach the gospel. That was what they were required to do by God. And what did they do? Well, they resisted that edict and they said this, we must obey God rather than man. And so the apostles were willing to be imprisoned rather than to disobey God. Even though the authorities told them you can't preach the gospel, they said, no, we must obey God rather than man. And they went on preaching. They were willing to go to prison rather than disobey God. You have places in the world, like China, where married couples are forbidden by law to have more than one child, and they're supposed to abort their other babies, and the Christian has to resist that wicked ordinance from man conscientiously. Or when in our own country, states are passing laws that forbid parents from spanking their own children. Again, we have to obey God rather than man. There are times we have to stand up for what's right, and and against what is wrong, no matter what the cost may be. Closer to home, because of the pandemic, governors in some states are prohibiting churches from gathering to worship Him. And not in a reasonable way that has to do with health and all of that. That's one thing. But where they're simply saying you can't meet as a church. And there are those that are, are resisting that. And I believe, personally, rightly so. Because they're obeying God rather than man. And so while civil government's authorities is limited, it's limited. And yet unless they require us to violate the law of God, we are then to submit ourselves as model citizens for Christ's sake. And I say this carefully, but the time may come for us that we would have to refuse to submit to civil authority in this area or that area because God's Word must take precedent over even civil authority. You have to be careful about that. Thirdly, we also are required to pay taxes to the civil government. Look at verse 6 and 7. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's minister, attending continually this very thing. Render, therefore, there's our word, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And um, I'm not excited about writing checks to the IRS any more than any of you are, but brothers and sisters, it is wrong for a Christian to refuse to pay his, his taxes that are due. God requires us to render to Caesar his due, including taxes. Remember, that was the real question that Jesus was being asked, wasn't it? Is it lawful for us to give to Caesar, render to Caesar taxes? Are we to pay taxes to Caesar? I mean, he's an ungodly man. He, he doesn't love a Jehovah. He, he wants religious worship himself. Should we pay taxes to this guy and to this wicked government? And you could say, well, Jesus leaves it an open question. I don't think he does. He says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. 
In other words, yes, pay your taxes. And we know that he later did. He said, now in one sense you're free. You belong to the heavenly kingdom. But you still should pay your taxes. Remember, and he found the coin in the fish's mouth and gave it to him. You know the story. The point is, he paid taxes even though he's the son of God and owes everything. But he paid taxes to Caesar anyway. And you and I as God's people are to pay taxes as well. Alright, First Peter. And I can see this is... Oh boy. Anyway, alright, First Peter. Move along here. First Peter chapter 2. A very similar passage really. Uh, Peter is writing to pilgrims dispersed to the Roman Empire. Now you have Nero, uh, who is a lovely fellow who hated Christians, was sending them to the to the lion's den and so forth. First Peter chapter two, verse thirteen. Therefore, submit yourselves to every. Notice that every ordinance or institution of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so Peter makes the same basic argument that Paul did in Romans 13. He adds a couple of things here. Notice what they are. He says, we're to honor or respect the king, verse 17, or civil authority. Christians are to go out of their way to express honor and respect for those who are in authority over them, even when they are not especially honorable people. The king, Peter, is commanding the believers to honor here was Nero. Look him up. Go home and Google him. A wicked man under whose government many Christians were suffering persecution, even martyrdom, including Peter later on. Nero is no friend to Christians or to righteousness. Brethren, in our society, may I suggest, there's sometimes we are sometimes guilty of not expressing appropriate honor to civil authority and officials. Now, in a free society, we have freedom of speech. It's easy for us to be able to ridicule and show even sinful disrespect to officials that we don't like. I've done it. Most of you probably have done it. Frankly, some of the officials that we have had and do have deserve ridicule and they don't deserve a whole lot of respect. I get that. But they hold an office that Peter says we're to honor. We're to honor them for their office's sake. Even when the person holding the office is despicable, we're still called to show respect for the office. And may I say, I don't have a lot of parents here, but we ought to teach our children, because this is going to go out to others, we're to teach our children to show respect to authority as well. We've all seen in these last few weeks and months the mostly young people, not all young people, but mostly young people, literally riding in the streets, spitting in the faces of police, in some cases even taking physical violent action against police and other authority figures. We've seen it all with our own eyes. How in the world did that ever happen? Well, we do understand about total depravity. We get it. We do understand the restraint, the withdrawal of restraining grace and common grace in our culture. We get it. But may I also submit to you that one of the problems that's fueling all of this is the lack of parental instruction and discipline in the home. And parents are letting their kids do whatever they doggone well please. And they don't have to obey anybody. And so they get out on the street and the cop comes and they're not taught they're to be submissive to civil authority. They're taught just do whatever you want to do and nobody can make you do anything you don't want to do. And so they spit in their face and they call them pigs and they shoot rockets at them and sometimes even hurt or kill them. Now their animosity is really towards God and towards authority, period. But part of that 
is children in our culture are not being taught basic respect. They're not. And parents that coddle their little children and give them anything they want and let them do anything they want to do with no consequences. And they think the world's like that. I can do anything I want to do with no consequences. And they end up in the pokey and perhaps a, a, a rap sheet and they'll never get a good job and they'll be in jail for 30 years and they'll get out and won't have a job. They'll be on welfare and you know how that goes. But a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it starts in the home. And if you're watching, listening, if you're here, whatever, get a hold of your kids and lovingly help them to see there's an authority structure in this world. God-ordained authority. It begins in the home. And then when they get out on their own, Hopefully, by the common grace of God, if not the saving grace of God, they'll have some respect for God-given authority. And if we're not willing to do that, don't be shocked when little so-and-so grows up and you get a call in the middle of the night, well, he's been shot by a cop because he was robbing a store and he resisted arrest. And they had no other choice but to shoot him. And now he's dead. And in some cases, I realize kids go bad on their own. I get that. It's their own sin. But in some cases, it's because the parents simply didn't teach them from the Word of God and with the rod, respect for authority. Alright, I've had my tirade. Now, alright, Second or First Timothy chapter 2. We've got to hurry. Um, I didn't finish that, and that's all right. First Timothy, we're to do that to silence the uh, ignorance of foolish men. Also, we're to be obedient to civil authority. Back in First Peter, but anyway, First Timothy is important. We need to see this as well. First Timothy, chapter two, and we'll read the first six verses. He says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And so we'll stop there. But Christians, especially... Uh, here in cor- and it's talking about corporate prayer meetings, first of all, by the way. He's giving instructions to Timothy about corporate prayer meetings. And uh, he assumes that churches have corporate prayer meetings, right? It'd be silly to write this if we didn't have a prayer meeting to utilize this. But anyway, churches have corporate prayer meetings. And uh, we're called upon in those prayer meetings, as well as personally, certainly, to pray for all sorts of people, including kings and those in authority. In other words, for political leaders. And to thank God for them as well as to intercede for them. And appreciate we're to pray for them primarily for two things. Two basic things. Number one, for their salvation. God desires all kinds of people to be saved, including kings and those in authority, political leaders. And we should pray that the Lord would save those that are in authority over us. Pray for their salvation. Pray for our president's salvation. Pray for governor's salvation. Pray for Congress and people in Congress. They need to be saved, brethren. That's part of the problem. So pray for them, that God would have mercy. We should pray the Lord would save them, pray that they might govern with godly wisdom and righteous integrity. And then we should pray for our leaders so that their influence would be advantageous to the church, being able to live a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence or dignity. Verse 2. How leaders lead often affects the welfare of the church and our ability to live in this country, in this world, live in peace and tranquility and godliness. And all you got to do is ask people in some of our more um, states that have 
gone beyond the pale, you might say. Just ask some of them how it is living in a state where they've clamped down in an unreasonable, tyrannical way. Or ask our brethren over in the Far East who have been dealt with in a way they've been dealt with in terms of their ability to teach the Word of God. Um, and how that the political leadership affects the welfare and well-being of the church and the people of God. And that's another reason for us to, where we have the liberty here, to vote intelligently, because political leaders have a huge effect upon the life and the ministry and well-being of the church of Christ. Alright? So we should pray for godly, wise, righteous leaders, brethren, for the sake of the church and our lives as well as for our children. Leaders in our country especially, we can be on the lookout for leaders that want to protect religious liberty. That's a big deal. Right? There are those that want to take it away. So let's pray that God would give us folks that, that would protect our religious liberty here in this country. Now, it may not be. That may not be God's will. He may want the church to go through a period of trying and persecution to, to weed out the false professors and to strengthen the people of God. Remember, the seed of the martyrs is the, is the life of the church. So, it may not be God's will. But we're to pray for this, aren't we? We're to pray if it's God's will. He would save people and He would give us leaders that protect our right to worship. And so the corporate prayers of the church are a powerful weapon for righteousness in any nation. And we dare not neglect to pray for those in authority. One of the things we owe Caesar is our intercessory prayers. Render unto God what is God's and unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, by way of application... Uh, we need to be careful that we don't confuse or equate Caesar's kingdom with God's kingdom. Or that we confuse America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, one nation under God, but we don't confuse America with Israel. Israel was a theocracy under the direct power of a sovereign God in order to bring the Messiah into the world. The United States is not Israel. In fact, I go so far as to say Israel over there is not really Israel. The church is spiritual Israel, but that's for another day. But there are some Christians, you see, that are sincerely convinced that it's the church's mandate to try to merge civil government and the kingdom of Christ, that it's our role to be actively and passionately engaged in politics and to do everything we possibly can do to turn all of our energy and all of our income and everything else to establish what they would say is a Christian nation and to create that city on a hill like the pilgrims wanted that we'll hear about in another week or two in the, in the class. And to infiltrate society and to bring all institutions under the crown rule of King Jesus. And good men have held that position. There are good men today that are seeking to do that very thing. Bless God for them. And while at first glance that sounds really great, it's not a biblical perspective. That's the problem. It's not a biblical perspective. Neither Think about it. Neither Jesus nor Paul, or Peter for that matter, Ever suggestion suggested that Christians were to do things politically to take over Palestine, the Roman Empire, Asia Minor for Christ. They never suggested that. Peter, we just read what Peter said. We just read what Paul said about civil authority. Nowhere in there, there did he say, now look, if they don't do what you want them to do, and if they're not doing the right thing, you take up arms and you do this and you do that and overthrow it so you can have a Christian government. He doesn't say that. Peter doesn't say that. He says, honor the king. What king? The very one that's still in authority right now. kingdom of Jesus 
is not from or of this world. To render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And then render to God that which belongs unto God. And they're not necessarily the same thing. Sometimes they overlap, I get that. But they're not the same thing. We're to, we're to labor to be model citizens of our nature, yes. But brothers and sisters, we are at the end of the day citizens of heaven and of a heavenly kingdom. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's His church's responsibility not so much to take back America for Jesus as it is to preach the gospel to America. To be salt and light in the midst of a dark and depraved and decaying world. To live righteous lives. To demonstrate the holiness of God. To seek to make disciples of all the nations, including our own nation. To promote the gospel. To promote the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not a political machine, but it is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Christ's kingdom, in other words, doesn't advance at the point of the sword or necessarily even at the ballot box, but rather the seed of the Word of the Gospel. And brethren, what our nation desperately needs is the Gospel of Christ. We need true Christians, you and, and me, to live serious Christian lives. To be courageous in spreading the message of the gospel. Calling all men from the highest to the lowest to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus. Yes, for them to submit themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lordship of Christ. And then for, for us to be zealous and fervent in prayer Prayer for true revival in the hearts of men. For men and for leaders to be born again. And for them to love God and love His Word and love His law. And live accordingly. For churches to be strong and faithful and holy. To be lighthouses for the truth. Brothers and sisters, judgment must begin at the house of God, not the White House. You understand that? And I've, and I've known folks that are just lathered for political activism, so-called Christians, and that they live sloppy lives, they're not committed to the church, they don't want to spread the gospel, they spend more time promoting political ads and political discourse than they do promoting the gospel. That's not right. That's not right. What America needs most, beloved, is the church to be the church. Can I put it that way? Three things. Number one, faithful proclamation. Number two, earnest supplication, earnest prayer. Number three, serious sanctification. That's what the church needs to be about. And if the church is about those three things, she will have an impact upon society. Amen. Political activity is not going to get the job done. But prayer and preaching and holiness will accomplish the purposes of God. Again, just let me say, I'm not suggesting Christians don't have a role to play in government, don't have a role to play in politics. I'm not saying you shouldn't go out and vote. Carry a sign, convince your neighbor, that's fine. Go for it. But brothers and sisters, remember this. Good laws, more conservative leaders, more pro-life Supreme Court justices alone are no substitute for biblical revival and repentance and for regenerated hearts that love God. And love is law. Amen. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. 
And with all of the chaos and all of the confusion that abounds in our own day, Lord, I pray that You would give each of us a heart to simply respond to Your Word. That we would be eager to render to You, render to You, first of all, that which is Yours. That we would not neglect You in all of this. That we would be committed to giving You what is Your due. And then help us as Your people to submit to civil government, even those that we don't like, as long as they don't violate our conscience, as long as they don't violate the Word of God, that we would be model citizens, that we would shut the mouths of foolish people. Help us, Lord. Help us to be a biblical church, that we might be a lighthouse of gospel truth right here in our own corner of the United States. Thank You, Lord. Bless our nation. Bless our president with grace and salvation. Help us to be faithful to You above everything else. We pray for those that might be here lost, that You would deal with them in Your mercy. They've never rendered one minute of what they owe You. Lord, point them to Christ, who perfectly rendered everything that You required. Please have mercy on them. We thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.